This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hello and welcome back to Exvangelical. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. This week, I'm happy to present to you the second part of my conversation with uh, the skeptical mystic, a.k.a. Stephen Jones. Um, and it's a bit of a longer discussion, goes a bit over an hour, and uh, hopefully that will fit into your schedule as hopefully you are on vacation or on your way to vacation or have some dead time at work that allows you to kind of enjoy a longer podcast uh, sesh, so to speak. Um we talk about St. John of the Cross, Teresa of Avila, Thomas Merton, a whole bunch of other stuff in between there, some great stuff about uh, the weird things in Ezekiel. It's a lot of fun, um, so we'll get right into it. As always, you can follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Pod. You can follow me on Twitter at brchastain. Please follow Stephen, uh, a.k.a. The Skeptical Mystic, on YouTube at The Skeptical Mystic. Search for that in quotes. And also follow him on Twitter at skeptical underscore monk. Uh, if you want to support the show, you can do so by either rating and reviewing the show on iTunes or supporting it directly via Patreon at patreon.com slash exvangelicalpod. All right, let's get into it. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Exvangelical. I am have with me again uh, Stephen Jones, a, a.k.a. The Skeptical Mystic, and he joined me a couple episodes back to give a mystical primer, a little bit of a history of the different um, facets of mysticism throughout the ages, and we're going to continue talking through a lot of the major uh, mystics throughout history in this discussion. Um, So welcome back to the show, Stephen. Thanks. Great to be here. You know, be here. (laughs) Um, so last, last, uh, last time we left off, I think we, we may have, uh, ended around Loyola or, uh, the desert. Actually, we did get to the desert fathers and the threefold path and, mm-hmm. um, where we're going to go next to start today is, um, we've already kind of laid the foundation of, uh, the primary tenants, like I mentioned before. Um, so I would, if you haven't listened to that episode already, go back and listen to that. Um, and where we're going to start now is with uh, John of the Cross, and he's best known for for his work, The Dark Night of the Soul. That's where that phrase comes from, is from that uh, text. Uh, but let's start by talking a little bit about about his his whole deal. <laughs> yeah, uh, his his whole deal. Um, as you say, it's really important and kind of well known. And not generally understood, I find. One of the first mystical uh, expressions I was exposed to was Dark Night of the Soul, and in entirely the wrong manner. Um, it tends to get this association of a difficult time, right? <sighs> Maybe a period of depression or yeah. struggle or something like that. And, and sometimes, uh, sometimes maybe it feels that way. Uh, but generally only if you're fighting it and you don't um, understand the purpose of this, uh, of this period. Uh, it might help to, to um, tie it just really briefly to how we ended the last episode um, with a threefold path. Okay, that yeah. 
um, that's one of the dominant uh, ways to approach the spiritual life, um, especially in Western Christianity, is the idea that there's this natural progression, that, and we all tend to follow it in rel- relatively consistent ways. There are patterns, you know, it's sort of predictable, but it's also fairly linear. And you made a point of saying, it's not always so linear, is it? It's complicated. Um, and it is complicated. And John is one of the first people to really investigate some of these complications. Hmm. And he says, you know, these transitions between um, like the purgative period and the illuminative and then the unitive, those transitions are not simple. And they can, they can be sort of uh, traumatic. Sometimes they coincide with um, very difficult periods in a person's life. What's going on there? Um, so pondering the stories that he had access to, um, contemplating his own experiences, he talks about two separate nights, actually. There's the dark night of the senses and the dark night of... Uh, the soul, and those correspond to these transition periods. And he he starts by writing this poem, and it's it's not a terribly long poem, um, and it's really beautiful. But then he writes two uh, full book length commentaries on the poem, uh, right? Because that's that's the beauty of poetry; it can express something very directly and simply that if you want to try to describe it in conceptual terms can be really complicated. (laughs) There's there's a lot more to be said, but basically in the poem, he describes this moment at night. He's, he's fired by this longing of love and he goes out into the night avoiding people. He doesn't want others to see him. He doesn't want to be seen. He goes out into the night He's not looking around at things. There's no light to guide him. He doesn't have any any person guiding him. But he's still led to the place where he encounters the lover. And then he praises the knight for being uh, what led to unity between lover and beloved. Um... He doesn't say it explicitly in the poem, but in in one of the two books where he's commenting on it, he he says the 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 thing about night, the reason why night is so important, we tend to experience it, we tend to think about it as um, a less pleasant time. We do all of our business in the day, not at night, right? Um, we're safer in the day we're less safe at night, right? Like we have all these conceptual binaries and he says, no night is the time when all of the lights in the world around you are going out. And if you're overly attached to those lights, then yeah, you won't experience this as as a pleasant thing, but all of those lights have to go out so that you can recognize the light that burns within. The light that burns in your heart is, is how he talks about it in the poem. When you discover the light within, then you can be led safely and confidently in the night. And it's the interior light that leads you to unity 
with the lover, right? It's the the light within that leads you to be beloved. Hmm. Wow. So he really praises the night. And other people will capitalize on, on this night imagery. Um, it's it's one of the it's one of the strains of Christian spirituality that speaks to me most personally, um, because I love the night. The night has a different energy than the day, right? Yeah, for sure. Day is social, and night is personal. Um, there's an intimacy to the nighttime. Mm-hmm. Um, when we talk about social interaction at night, those have a very different tone, a very different quality, a sensual quality, you know, that, that interaction in the daytime doesn't have. Day is when everyone is um, occupied with their business. Everyone has plans. They have a rush. People are in control in the daytime. Night is when you and your beloved go out on a walk and you don't have anywhere to go. Night is about intimate encounter. Uh, night is the setting for uh, romantic tryst. And so spirituality cast in those tones becomes a very different thing. Yeah, I, I never thought of it in that way. I mean, yeah, when you think about all the things, even socially, like that over time we've constructed to to do at night that's when we go out to bars that's when we spend time with our friends that's when yeah that's when you let your hair down that's when you let yourself be yourself absolutely absolutely and and you know there's there's significance to worship in the daytime you know i mean the 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 first christians gather at sunrise because the idea of coming into the day out of the night is really significant we tie that to resurrection and and there's meaning there. I don't want to uh, abandon that. But there's a sense in which our binaries become overgrown, right? Mm. This is good and this is bad. And if if the if the mystical tradition has one thing in particular to offer, even even aside from like religious claims and all that, it's that it calls us out of those convenient dualisms. Traditional thought and traditional religion, traditional philosophy is all about this either or thinking. Everything is either this or that. It's very rigid. It's very simple. But experience of the divine moves beyond that. Moving deeper into spirituality means you leave behind all the, a lot of that binary thinking. And so you come to this unitive place where day is good, night is good, they're different, and that's okay. And that's, I mean, that seems like such an obvious thing to us because we're kind of used to that language now anyway, right? That diversity is a good thing. Yeah. But we're still heir to these powerful binaries where um, darkness is bad, light is good, and it's not like there's no truth in that, right? Because who else goes out at night? You know, classically, that's when that's when thieves are out. That's when murderers are out, etc. There is risk, but it's also precisely in that risky place where you encounter God. Mm, yeah, it, it's precisely when we're all letting our hair down, we're we're not being our our performed selves in the daytime, right? 
when yeah. we're when we're busy in the day, we ever we have roles to fill. We're performing, and it's when we stop performing that we can encounter God. Yeah, yeah, and that that dualism you mentioned that's um that's definitely something that I I think is within the like within this current moment is something that Richard Rohr in particular has really vocalized being non-dual and what that means and um so I really liked how how you how you explained that just that um it it I don't know it's it's one of those sorts of phrases that sounds sort of clumsy the first time you hear it a little bit <laughs> a little bit like gobbledygook but then, yeah. like, if you sit with it for a little bit, then it really starts to uh, starts to gel. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I mean, dualism and non-dualism, like, this is the language of of classical philosophy, right? Like, this is these are categories of ontology. This is kind of highbrow, very abstract stuff. Um, and in that sense, who really cares? I mean, most of us don't. But on a very gut level, these things do really matter. And, um, the, our language is constructed around it. Our social engagement is, is structured around it. Our identities are structured around it. And fundamentally, um, I mean, we're heir to a lot of traditions. We're heir to very Greek dualism, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Spirit is good and matter is bad. And man, you get that kind of garbage in churches all over the place. They have no idea that what they're talking about is not particularly Christian. If there's one God and that God is creator, then creation looks like God and creation is good. Um, And yeah, we can have the whole conversation about sin and evil and whatever all that is. But fundamentally... All things have to do with the creator and we have to do with the creator. And so the very idea that binaries can exist, that something can be clearly good and its opposite is clearly bad, that falls apart in a Christian framework. If we take seriously our claims about like what we believe, then dualism doesn't have a, have a place in Christianity. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a very um provocative but very true. <laughs> I mean, the whole the whole point of the incarnation, right? Like we're coming up on on Christmas. And this this attitude had been growing in me a bit and last year I finally started vocalizing it. That if if you're making a big deal about the commercialization of Christmas, you're probably missing the whole point of Christmas entirely. Like if Christmas isn't spiritual enough for you because we're doing all of these material things, like that's missing the point of the incarnation. The whole point of the incarnation is that all of this mundane, supposedly non-spiritual stuff is spiritual reality, right? Like right. the like the divine and the human come together and all of this stuff has meaning. And if you keep trying to separate these things out, you're totally missing the point. Mm-hmm. So what else, um, what else to bring this back to <laughs> this idea about, uh, to, to this, I, this idea about, um, John of the cross in particular, um, 
Uh, should we give a little more background about where he was coming from historically? Or There's a lot that could be said about, about St. John of the Cross. He's influenced by a lot of um, classical, medieval, um, mystical works. Um, we haven't really talked about Pseudo-Dionysius, but he's a really big deal. But really, what's important to, to discuss about John is um his imprisonment because um he was uh he was active in in reforming the carmelite order and um there were obviously a lot of people opposed to that um and he ends up in prison um it's debatable you know how much he deserved this but history is sort of on his side you know, uh, we are sort of on his side, uh, I guess. But he spends this time um, in a very small cell. Like, he can barely fit inside, and it's dark, and there's nothing he can do, right? He has no way to spend his time. It was a situation that was robbing him of his humanity, right? Mm. But it's also in that place where he composed most of the spiritual canticle, um, it's where he has a lot of these beginning insights that later on will develop into, you know, his writings. And so it's hard to, to go more in depth than that, but, but that's really the genius of John right there is that in the worst situations you can imagine, there is room for spiritual growth. Yeah. And it, it does, uh, sort of, it, it does show where, how how real this imagery was to him uh, it doesn't really in that context it doesn't sound like it was all that metaphorical yeah absolutely that's that's the thing about night and that's i mean one of the reasons why it popularly tends to be associated with uh depression or struggle is because overtly that was the experience he was in right but where he goes from there subverts the idea that night should be associated with depression or struggle it's it's that well i mean like like he says it's when the lights of your world start going out when you no longer have things in this life that are sustaining your hope that are sustaining your life you can finally be free to discover the true source of your life and hope and then the situation you're in doesn't matter mm yeah Hmm. <laughs> I'm just sitting in that moment for a second. <laughs> um, I'm I'm always definitely in, definitely intrigued with with any anything that sort of takes these lower moments of life and then acknowledges their their lowness, their you know a depressing moment. Um, but yeah. then moves from there and in a way that that leads back to hope even if it goes through through depression again yeah um it's a i guess the the more like modern term might be something you might describe it as resilience um but yeah um but yeah finding that following that inner inner light i mean that that's common common language amongst quakers and things like that but um when you 
put it in that context of, of being in the dark. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I keep getting lost in the imagery. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry about yeah. that listeners. It's, it's definitely, you know, um, it's definitely something to ponder. <laughs> it's, it's, it's powerful imagery partly because it's so simple and because it's such a universal experience, you know? Yeah. You can um, close your eyes and be in, in the night. So absolutely. So it's very relatable, but, but this tradition gets developed in really powerful ways. Um, there's this phrase, it's a much more modern phrase, um, the violence of love. Um, my introduction to that phrase uh, was through Oscar Romero. Um, he's, he's one of my favorites. But the idea of the violence of love is that here we have a God who because of love allows us to be in at least in the overt sense pretty tragic circumstances god allows some pretty horrific realities and we have to deal with them and i mean it's it's classic problem of evil stuff right how can a good and loving god do these things and stemming from St. John's um, reworking of the night, that God allows the night so that we recognize our own true light, so that that light can lead us to God, and we can find peace regardless of circumstances. And so a loving God has to do this thing in order to, to help us um, come to enlightenment. And I mean, what does enlightenment mean? It means coming into that light. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, and so night's necessary. And so we experience that as violence, but it's a violence of love. It's, it's, you know, for a parent when you're, I mean, I, I coach nonviolent like parenting techniques all the time, but at the same time, if your kid's darting out into traffic, you're not going to be concerned about how pleasant it is. You're going to snatch the kid up and keep them safe, right? There's a certain aggression. There's a certain passion to love. And if we can extrapolate a bit of that for the divine, then God will do what it takes to help us recognize our own light, to help us recognize love, to help us recognize a true source of hope. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But of course that feels terrible. I mean, that's the whole point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. It's why the problem of suffering will never go away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's always going to be a perennial question. And, um, yeah, the, all the answers that people find keep getting lost to time <laughs> mm-hmm. and then yep. rediscovered again. I, I haven't heard that phrase. I, well, I know, uh, well, there's a Shakespeare line that's in the, that's 
in the ether right now because of Westworld, which is these violent delights have violent ends. But that's from, <laughs> that's from uh, uh, Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> it is like a, a, a plot device in Westworld right now. <laughs> <laughs> But anyways, uh, that's that's a bit off topic. Um, <laughs> but um, one of these, one of the things clearly that's that's part of um, John's work <coughs> and is part of uh, the work of the next person that we we're going to be talking about is definitely looking inward, um, looking inward to uh, to in many ways rid yourself of the distractions of of the things outside of yourself or outside of God. Um, and the next person is, uh, Teresa, uh, no, yes. Teresa of Avila. Sorry. Yeah. I was going to say Lasso, uh, Teresa of Avila, who, who talks about, um, an interior castle. Um, so do, do those sorts of things connect for, for, uh, into, into her thinking as well, as far as looking at, looking inward and discovering things within the self um i'm i'm in the dark with uh <laughs> i'm in the dark when it comes to teresa so <laughs> i'm definitely gonna uh yeah <laughs> just love to learn more about her right here on the air because I, I don't i know the name but i don't really know what her her thoughts represent teresa's fascinating um she forms a sort of pair with uh saint john uh saint john of the cross um that's one of the fascinating things we find in the Western. Christian mystical tradition is so often there are these pairs of mystics. You'll get a male and a female mystic that are oftentimes they know each other or are connected in some way, but they, they still are um, complementary in some really profound way. Um, Teresa and John knew each other and worked together. Um, and she's very influenced by his thought but is also influenced by um, uh, a lot of other traditional uh, elements of the mystical tradition, um, and she's a she's a she's a theologian, um, a, a, a particularly uh, mystical theologian, and and the move inward is really part of what's significant for her, but we kind of have to back up to appreciate what's happening with Teresa. And we have to back up all the way to some really ancient mystical uh, narratives, right? Um, Old Testament stuff. And we'll try to go through these pretty quickly because I get excited about this stuff and I can talk about it forever. Um, I geek out about the weirdest things. (laughs) The earliest seeds of mysticism in the Jewish tradition um, which, you know, Christianity is heir to these early seeds as well. Um, some of the earliest scenes are are like in Exodus, right? Um, where Moses has these experiences of going up the mountain. Um, and regardless of whether you take these seriously as, as history or as a narrative being uh, superimposed upon the past, it really doesn't matter. Uh, the narratives are what form the seeds for later contemplation and later mystical experience. So Moses has this experience of he's come back to the mountain for the second time, right? He's already encountered God on this mountain. So 
he's leading the people out of Egypt. So this is part of the whole exilic story that provides foundation for the whole Jewish narrative. They, they come up to the mountain again, and the people are scared. They don't want to go up. And so Moses is the one who ascends the mountain again. And he knows what's waiting at the top of the mountain. He's already experienced Yahweh. He's already had this encounter. Um, but according to the text, as he's ascending the mountain, he draws near to the thick darkness where God is. And so right away you're getting this pairing of going up the mountain means entering into darkness. Mm. And that uh, that pairing becomes central to the Jewish mystical experience and the, and the Christian mystical experience. That you do draw closer to God. You, you can encounter God, but the closer you come to God, the less you get to understand. It's an experience of giving up your control, giving up your ability to know what's going on. And so afterward, you can't speak with any real authority about who God is. But there's a certain conviction of experience it's really complicated. It's hard to speak of. And so sticking with that imagery of going up the mountain into a, into a dark cloud, it's, it's just profoundly useful language. But while, you know, while he's up there, there are these details he describes or that are described in the text about there's like this pavement of clear stone like glass. And so you see this get developed later on in other stories of encounter where um, that scene evolves into a kind of throne room scene and uh the word for that um it's it's the same word for palace or 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 you could think of it as temple but it's it's a throne room it, the word is hikal and so this tradition becomes uh, uh known as the hikal literature and uh the mystical practice based on that is to to it's it's an imaginative mystical practice right so you imagine yourself uh, progressing into the throne room of God, ascending toward God. So there's a kind of ascent to it, but there's also sort of an entering into the center. Mm, um, okay. So both of those themes are there, but also as you come closer to God, you're entering into darkness. You're you're giving up on your right to know. You know. Then, um, this kind of imagery takes a sharp right hand turn with Ezekiel. Ezekiel is a crazy prophet who decides <laughs> uh, maybe God's not just stuck in a building, but maybe God can move and God can go wherever God wants to go. Um, that doesn't sound like a radical idea to us, but early on, it's a big deal because the whole idea of the dwelling place of God was taken much more seriously and much more literally. And so here the people are, are about to go into exile. And so Ezekiel, as a priest, is pretty concerned. Uh, first of all, why are we having to go into exile? God's supposed to keep us safe. God's in that building right there that I can point to. Has God been defeated? If so, why are we worshiping God? And if not, why has God let this happen? Because that's not supposed to happen. And what happens to our religion now? Because the whole thing was based on God giving us this land and keeping us safe in it. Mm -hmm. and, you know, all of the all of the foundational elements of our, our religion are gone. So now, who are we as a people? 
and what is the whole point of this this religious practice that he's dedicated himself to so he hit the book of ezekiel opens with this bizarre vision of this sort of throne thing in the sky and it seems to be made up of angels maybe <laughs> um like several different kinds of angels and there's this box like thing and um wheels within it, wheels it, yeah it rests on <laughs> wheels within wheels and and the whole idea there right is it's it's more like a ball so this this throne can travel in all four directions that's the whole idea of the wheels within wheels um so now we have a throne that's also a chariot and that's what god is riding across the sky and so this thing this heavenly throne chariot um <laughs> Uh, begins to be called the, the Merkava. And so Merkava mysticism is one of the most important, like foundational elements of, of Jewish mysticism. Um, meditating on this, whatever vision, uh, whatever this vision that Ezekiel had is, um, Ezekiel's just fascinating and bizarre. <laughs> yeah, it's so strange. <laughs> but um the Hikalot stuff, all of the 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 throne palace imagery and the the Merkava imagery, all of these elements of you're approaching God, but God's transcendent, but also the whole point of God being able to travel is that God is now going into exile with the people. Which is huge. That's a beautiful idea. And later on the prophets developed this idea that maybe our suffering in in Babylon was not punishment for something we did wrong because we didn't really think we were do, doing all so bad. Maybe our suffering is redemptive on behalf of the world. And so the idea of God being in the suffering with them as they're suffering for the sake of the world, that's a huge idea. And And of course, all of this stuff has its influence on the first Christians when they're trying to wrestle with Jesus has died. What does this mean? What's the significance of it? Hey, wait, maybe his, his suffering is redemptive for the sake of the world, right? The idea that God enters into suffering. So incarnation, uh, atonement, all of these doctrines in Jesus are coming out of the exilic experience. And the idea that God can travel has everything to do with it. Anyway, I'm geeking out. <laughs> no, I mean, that's uh that's great. And uh, honestly, like, um, anybody that, anybody that can, uh, <laughs> it, that can make any sense of Ezekiel is a national treasure <laughs> 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 because, because like you, you read that and, uh, I mean, it's just a bonkers text. Uh, it's been a long time since I've, since I've read through it, but I mean, you have, um, the, the description of like the six, six, uh, the six winged angels and things covered in the eyes and him laying on his side for a year, uh, burrowing through yeah. his own house. Like he was a performance artist. <laughs> like, Absolutely. He was a performance artist. And it's just like, wackadoo. That's the thing about like, that's the thing about prophecy that we miss is it was performance art, right? It, it was bizarre and attention grabbing. <laughs> yeah. I can't even think of any other term for it. Like, yeah. especially when it comes to uh, Ezekiel in particular. I mean, he mm -hmm. does some off the wall stuff. <laughs> he gets way weirder than maybe 
prophets ought to. <laughs> he got away with it because in retrospect, I guess people thought he was kind of right. Um, yeah. Anyway, I've, I've a weird fascination with the classic, like sixth century or so. Um, uh, uh, the 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 classic prophets, right? Um, uh, they're all really weird in some very important ways. Yeah, yeah. And and they're the they're the Jewish, you know, pre-Jewish, um, expression of the axial age, right? At this time, all over the world, crazy things are happening to religion. People are are changing the way they're thinking about reality and humanity. Everything is changing in some strikingly similar and unprecedented ways. And the classic prophets, you know, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, um, I, uh, second and third Isaiah, let's not get into that, but <laughs> those guys um, are a part of this. They're sort of the Israelite expression of it. Mm-hmm. So sorry, can you uh, explain a couple of things you mentioned at the axial age? Yeah. What are you What are you referring to there? Okay, yeah, this doesn't have a lot to do with mysticism, other than um, for Christian and Jewish mysticism, it's sort of born out of this shift. Um, the axial age is this period of of a few centuries, give or take, somewhere around six hundred BC. We'll say. Um, and this is the classic age of philosophy in Greece. It's the classic age of Hinduism. The origins of Buddhism and Jainism lie in this period. Um, this is when classical Israelite religion starts to take shape. Like, whatever it was before this period and what it becomes afterward look very different from each other. And uh, th th we see the rise of Confucianism and Taoism in China. And so in all of these very disparate places, religion starts to become something different than it had been before. Before this, religion is mostly about um, performing our proper role to maintain the order of creation. And it's hard for us to even relate to what religion is like in that sense, because it's, those just aren't our values. That's not how we approach it. Our, our, our whole understanding of religion is different because of the axial age. It's at this period there, there becomes this tremendous dissatisfaction with death. We're no longer approaching death as just a part of ordered existence. Now death is seen as something tragic. We have questions about what happens after death. Um, we are concerned about personal morality. Um, we're concerned about social justice and things like that. All of these themes that are still very current and modern now are born out of these axial age shifts. Hmm. So that's sort of what I'm talking about there. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that, that that's a lot to like when you, yeah when you take that into, when you take that into account and you, and you, you know, you plop that in the middle of the old Testament, for example, you like you start to understand why, um, when it may be easy to think of it and sometimes people might call it like a more tribalistic sorts of uh sense of religion or something where yeah. where you are 
the rituals that the, that whatever your your religious leader is prescribing are because of that's how you maintain the natural order of things uh the social mm-hmm. order of things and so just thinking out loud like if you put that in that context then all of a sudden the reason why the israelites keep can't stop worshiping asherah and baal and stuff mm-hmm. is cuz they're just you know <laughs> they're just grasping grasping to try to maintain their sense of social order even though this text in this religion that they they had uh homegrown it didn't stop them from doing that because they were still trying to <laughs> pursue just keeping things in order through religion. Um, it's really yeah. interesting. Um, very interesting. They're straddling this um, major divide in what religion means. And so in many ways they're practicing multiple religions alongside each other. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And there's, there's even, there's even debate, about what it means to worship Yahweh, because there are preaxial images of what Yahweh is supposed to be. You know, he's a he's a warrior god. He's a tribal god. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a god attached to the land. And later on, Yahweh starts taking very different appearances, and the prophets start saying, "Who asked you to sacrifice animals for Yahweh? Yahweh didn't ask you to do that." Well, that's not what the that's not what they said early on. Of course, yeah. Yahweh asked for that, right? Yeah. But it's this axial shift in um, what what the whole purpose of religion is. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> we could talk about that for the rest of the episode. <laughs> yeah, I could talk about it way too long. <laughs> that's that's but, uh, that's definitely <laughs> uh, really fascinating. Um, you mentioned something out of um, out of Ezekiel, though, that's significant. Um, the angels with six wings, and they're covered in eyes and all that. Um, uh, these are the cherubim, the the warrior angels. Uh, angel just means messenger, right? But if your messenger has a sword, well, that means something different than if your messenger just has a trumpet. Um, that's <laughs> and <laughs> that's what cherubs uh, end up being. Um, the cherubim. Um, but they're the origin of this idea that there are, there are spiritual beings or spiritual energies that try to keep us out of the presence of God. And that becomes a huge deal in Jewish mysticism, especially in the Enochian literature and yada, yada, yada. Um, as you're, as you're approaching, as you're ascending the mountain, there are angels, we'll say whose job it is to protect God's holiness and to protect us from God's holiness. Because if we, if we don't take God's holiness seriously on approach, it could be harmful for us. And so there are beings whose job it is to frustrate our attempts. Hmm. That's weird. Um, but it kind of makes sense. Um, but it has, but it brings us back to the idea that there is some kind of ascent to God and it's not an easy thing. It's not, it's not something that happens quickly. And so, um, the idea that, uh, the language of there being multiple heavens, right. Um, in the new Testament, we get these, these isolated and unexplained passages where they'll talk about being in the third heaven or the seventh heaven and what's going on there. Those are developed, 
it's it's a long story to explain all of it, but the basic thrust of it is that there's an ascent to God, and there are stages, if you if you want to say, on the way, and that it's not easy. Um, the the heavens are are elaborated so that you can say you're getting closer to God, but God is still far away from you. Because we want to say both at the same time, that you can't ever approach God and God is approachable. Hmm. And essentially, that's what we're getting with things like the uh, um, the interior castle. It brings us right back into Teresa of Avila, that she she takes this idea of approach to God, um, and she does something unusual with it. Now, really briefly, the idea of going up the mountain into a cloud is big in the New Testament because that's the story of the transfiguration that Jesus goes up the mountain and then enters into a cloud where Jesus encounters God. And, and when Jesus leaves, he's, he's radiant with God's glory. And one of the most important um, mystical works in English tradition is the, the great cloud of unknowing. And it really develops this theme of ascending up the mountain but that also means entering into the cloud of, of unknowing. And what Teresa does is takes this very long-standing traditional practice of contemplating an exterior ascent into the heavens, like up a mountain, and she turns it inward. That's part of John's influence on her, is this turn inward. The ascent still happens, but the ascent happens within you. Interior Castle is also called um, the Seven Mansions um, because there's a sense in which they're, it's almost like they're stacked on each other or you're spiraling up a mountain. And so you are getting closer to the center and you're going up. See, these, all of the old themes are being just recycled, hmm. right? Um, and she says there are these seven stages. That you that that you progress through on your way to direct encounter with God, and basically, the first three of those stages are ordinary prayer practices, the sort of things that you see Christians do all the time: um, overt prayer, prayer that leads to action, etc. The shift happens between three and four. Four is where a person be- turns inward and begins the practices of contemplative prayer. It's the spirituality of the second half of life, where you're not so busy with the external things 
you're busy nurturing your own presence with God. And she says, that's where you begin to experience the supernatural. What she means by that, I don't know. Um, (laughs) But but the thrust of it is, that's where the real power is. Is when you turn away from external forms and begin practicing the internal forms. So what about, um, so what does she prescribe? Um, is it, is it really, is contemplative prayer really the, the starting point there? Um, and by, by that, just to define that a little bit, are we talking more about when we say contemplative prayer, something that we might think of, uh, in a more modern context of something similar to meditation where it's a focused attention on a particular detail or on a particular idea? Um, What's that practice look like and how, and how she describes it? Well, the, there, there was as much variety in practice then as there is now. But um, she, does, she does tend to describe what you begin in, um, in mansion number four, uh, right? Stage four. Mm-hmm. What you begin there is um, the prayer of quiet where it's less about you talking to God and it's not even so much about a conversation. It's when you finally come to a place in your friendship with God, we'll say where you can sit beside each other and not talk. And that's still meaningful. Now, as an, as a highly introverted person, that's very important to me. Like that's powerful imagery. The people who I can trust to sit beside me, and I have a friendship connection with them, and I don't have to say anything, that's powerful. And, and that's a particularly deep kind of intimacy where we're no longer in performance mode mm-hmm. with each other, right? And that's essentially what she's talking about, is you can begin to not talk and just be still with God, and there's something even more profound that happens when you're not using language. The Eastern tradition calls this 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 movement hesychasm. It's it's just um, learning to be quiet, an interior kind of stillness and quiet. It reminds me of, I mean, this gets passed around all the time. Um, this story about Mother Teresa when she's asked how she prays, uh, what does she say when she prays, and she says, "I mostly just listen." And so the response was. Well, what does God say when you pray? And she says, he mostly just listens too. Hmm. That's the kind of prayer we're talking about. Um, where language is left behind because it's, it's inadequate. Yeah, I think that sentimentality is just really important in this moment. <laughs> like, I just, uh, that, that sentimentality, that focus on, um, on stillness or in quiet, um, I think it keeps coming up in all sorts of contexts because of the uh, the lack we have in it right now. I, I even had yeah. I had a college uh, roommate who um, who said, you know, I I don't think people. It's a it's sad that people are no longer um, comfortable with silence. And this was in two thousand four. I mean, mm-hmm. 
the noise has gotten a lot louder since then. And the noise we expect, each each and every one of us expects even of ourselves to make sometimes. Like, that's why social media feels like an obligation <laughs> to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Because it's, 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 in 10 short years, has rewired our sense of validation. Um, and it's a practice now to get back to a quiet place. And I think that's really essential. The beautiful thing about it, I mean, we usually approach this as a problem, right? That um, noise, social noise, you know, um, cognitive noise, um, affective, like heart level noise, is, is maybe a bigger problem now than it's ever been. But also, because of that, we're in this really amazing place where even the smallest amount of practice of stillness and solitude and quiet is so profoundly powerful. Mm-hmm. That's one of the reasons why why people are discovering this again as this this powerful source of spiritual renewal because it's precisely the medicine that's needed. A little bit can go a long way. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's an opportunity as much as a problem. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, to bring in my <laughs> one of my favorite guys, and I know you know this because I talk about him <laughs> with you all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, McLuhan, uh, Marshall McLuhan, he likes to talk about um uh, about stages of men as far as in relation to literacy like pre-literate literate and post-literate or what he calls electric man and um one of the things he says is electric electric man lives mythically and all at once mm-hmm. um which i think is really true and i think um just the way that we put ourselves out there in such a way and we talk so often um in such a manic like if you took someone from the early 20th century or any other time in history before then like they would probably be shocked at how much we talk and talk and talk and talk and and share and and dialogue and and everything um and yeah that's um that is a great thing like i think it's accelerating a lot of social changes and personal changes um and the uh the not ironic the unexpected thing is that like you said a little bit makes a massive massive uh effect in on, on a personal level which is just fascinating <laughs> this is me geeking out too like <laughs> uh, if if anyone's really interested in exploring um silence silence is spiritual practice and and would like to see some of the power in it um some of the difficulty in it and really just even just get a glimpse into a world that's strange to us now. Uh, I'd recommend the documentary integrate silence. Hmm. Uh, It was released in 2005 and it's a very intimate look um, at the normal lives of Carthusian monks in the French Alps. And it's an extraordinarily silent film. So the moments when silence is broken, those are, enormously powerful it reminds me of something that that i say to people all the time uh being a person who i don't seem like it when i'm on your podcast but i don't say very much (laughs) (laughs) um and in defense of that um i always say i'm happy not saying much because that means that the few words i do say have more power right um now maybe there's a little ego stroking going on there but there is something powerful to be said about that. In a world where we're encouraged to keep talking, 
um, almost as a way to reassure ourselves that we continue to be who we are or who we want to be. Um, there's a kind of obsession with continuing the communication um, that we really rob ourselves of the meaning that we're seeking after. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that, uh, that has a lot of truth in it. Um, from a practical level, it, it's definitely on an individual level. Um, and I know people that are freed personally when they stop going on Facebook. Um, yeah. You know, <laughs> like actual freedom, they feel liberated. Um, and for others, uh, you know, it may just be a social obligation or a career obligation or, or whatever. Um, however, that sort of stuff is navigated. But um, being, I think the the thing that keeps coming, coming through with this discussion, with so many discussions, is just being true and honest with yourself is always the, always the best policy, um, yeah. regardless of the risk that that can often entail. Because um, there is risk in being true and honest with yourself, uh, for that's sure. One of, that's one of the beautiful insights, I think, of the mystical tradition also, is that um, being honest with yourself takes a lot of effort, actually. It takes a lot of discipline, because by default, you're not necessarily in touch with your truest self any more than anyone else is. Right. And it's only through stillness and, you know, like we were talking about in the, in the, the last episode I was on, um, the process of descending deep within yourself and then rising back up um, is necessary in order to even discover who you are in the moment. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and one of the people that, that has really brought that to the fore in, in modern times is the writer and monk Thomas Merton. He wrote a lot yeah. about the true self uh, and the false self, um, and he's definitely one of the one of the more well known figures in well, probably in world religion, right? Um, over the past fifty years or so, because of his uh, autobiography, The Seven Story Mountain, and his, the influence of that has echoed in a lot of people's lives. Um, but Merton um, definitely focused in on this this aspect of true and false self um so that's why we wanted to bring him up as well so what should we say about <laughs> about thomas merton the problem with merton is you said he he wrote a lot about the true self and false self he wrote a lot about a lot of things he wrote <laughs> so much he's such a prolific writer um that he's he's kind of obnoxious to have to talk about um <laughs> especially for people like you you and me who like to think that we're writers to some degree um he's so prolific that it's discouraging <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah yeah he's um, one of those people that just bleed ink yeah yeah and i'm sure he didn't he didn't see it that way um <laughs> goodness anyway <laughs> it's it's impossible to summarize um the themes of merton spirituality um because his writings cover in depth um, decades of spiritual development. Um, and so his themes changed with who he, who he was. Um, however, one of the most important themes is, is his exploration of the true self. 
And he uses this phrase from Paul, uh, hid with Christ in God, that you are, that you are hid with Christ in God. Um, Thomas, Thomas does this, this play on it. Um, when Paul says, you died to this life, your real life is hidden with Christ in God, Merton wants to play with that. What does that mean? You died to your false self, and you've taken up the cross of your true self. Right? So when you take up your cross and follow, follow Jesus, you know, that, that perennial call, what does that mean? That's the call to be who you truly are. And so there is a certain kind of sacrifice associated with that. There is a certain kind of death associated with that because it does mean a letting go of the old. And what is the old self? Well, you can explore that in a thousand different ways. But in keeping with the themes um, that we've been revisiting throughout these conversations, essentially the old self has inordinate attachments to the things of this world. The, the false self is obsessed with the lights of this world, and so is out of touch with the interior light, is out of, out of touch with um, the source of its true being. And so Merton talks a lot about this. He gets so deep that it seems convoluted. Um, <laughs> but he, he, he explores repeatedly this idea of prayer and contemplation and the spiritual disciplines overall as a way of guiding you away from your false self and toward your true self. And at times he describes this as an impossible thing. This isn't something you can do. Because as your false self, you're out of touch with the thing that you need to become your true self. It's, it's not within your means. But that through this, um, through this act of grace, um, through, through God's way of working in the world, through Jesus, etc., um, the impossible becomes possible because God puts us back in touch with something that we had lost access to. Hmm. And, and this is where he jives with um, the great cloud of unknowing and the, the traditions of going up the mountain and into the cloud because the true self is not something you ever get to possess. It's, it's who you really are, but also it's you out of control. And hmm. that would seem to fly in the face a bit with what Paul talks about with, with, with self-control, right? Self-control is one of the fruits of the spirit, but he'd say that's precisely the point that when we stop trying to control and own ourselves, we are then able to have self-control. That what we mean by self-control is actually just being our true selves, which is a very freeing experience. That's not an experience of control at all. It's, it's giving up control. When I, when I stop trying to own my own self and rather allow myself to be an entirely dependent creature, then I am suddenly able to be free to be who I really am. And it doesn't take effort to keep myself in line. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. I, uh, with, with that, <laughs> I mean, 
that that just totally inverts um and just totally inverts what what you might say would be like the typical evangelical or even christian maybe even base baseline christian sort of um understanding that a lot of people have which is that it's about striving um and that you know you're striving to control uh you know as a as a young teenage boy you know there's a lot of things you're trying to strive to control as as a as a young teenage girl there's you know as as any any point in your life there's something that you're striving to control um and it feels like you can't trust yourself <laughs> like mm-hmm. um and that's where definitely the uh, the ideas of sin and what it means to uh all of that and what it means to sin and what constitutes sin and everything else like that's when all of that enters in and um to surrender like the idea of surrender in this fashion not like in like the praise and worship band sort of fashion where it's yeah. like momentary um to acknowledge your lack of control <laughs> i it, it's it's just it's a complete and total inversion i don't really know what to do with the concept of something like sin when you reach that um when you reach that sort of point and i don't even um know if there is anything to do with it when it's more about um allowing God to work in the present moment essentially um because fruit is something that that yields that's yielded when everything else is being fed <laughs> uh, yeah. in an organism it's not in a in a plant it's not the first thing it's it's the result of all the other things um well you know what what paul does what what Paul does with sin um he plays this funny game um i mean paul's Paul engages in more interesting rhetoric than we usually give him credit for. Um, he plays this game with um, you take seriously the specific actions, um, but 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 what sin really is is disconnectedness that we're out of touch with the true source of our being, and so the fruit of that is all these particular things that everyone gets upset with, but you can't do anything about those. You can do anything. You can do something about connectedness, you know, mm-hmm. by God's by God's grace, and and then all of these other things get taken care of. Um, it's 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 the classic thing that people sing in church all the time: "Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these other things will happen." Yeah. Right. Yep. Um, take care of the important thing, and everything else falls into place. Um, it. I always. I mean, in some ways, this reveals my evangelical background, right? But I always come back to um, Psalm 46. Um, despite how popularly, um, you know, used and abused it is, it really is a powerful psalm. It talks a lot about um, God being present and God offering security. And so even if things are in turmoil, um, even if the world is falling apart, um, there is still security in God's presence. And so the nations are in uproar, kingdoms totter, you know. Um, when God speaks, though, all of, that will, all of that falls apart. All of that loses its, its value. Mm-hmm. Um, 
the presence of God is refuge. Well, how do you have access to your to your true self? If your true if your true self is hid with Christ in God, then you only get to have access to your true self when you're in the presence of God, right? And so this very mundane practice that like Brother Lawrence talks about, practicing the presence of God in ordinary everyday life. Well, that ends up being, you know, the secret to everything. Because it's only through that that you get to continually be who you really are. That's <laughs> the idea. Um, but yeah, in, in the psalm, um, there's, there's war and conflict, but what's God's response? Stop striving and know that I'm God. And you, you even use the language of striving. But man, that's that's the kind of ethical and moral framework we were given, right? Like the assumption is that you, you have complete freedom to choose the right and you're expected to do so. And uh, it turns out that maybe we don't have complete freedom to choose the right. Yeah. And, and that in fact, um, being obsessed about choosing the right is maybe not helpful and may actually be the root of the problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what happens, what happens in the garden, right? Um, if we're to stick with a pretty classical, traditional interpretation of this stuff, what happens in the garden? Humanity pursues the knowledge of good and evil. And now, what's the problem? We now have this knowledge of good and evil. We weren't supposed to have it. It's a burden too great for us. The human plight is that we've gotten ourselves into something that wasn't what that we weren't created for. We weren't created for the burden of knowledge of good and evil. We weren't meant to be obsessing about that. We were meant to rest at peace and be free and do whatever we wanted to do because we only ever wanted to love. As long as, I mean, that's what it, that's that's Augustine's directive, right? Love and then do whatever you want to do. <laughs> yeah. That's that's simplicity. We screwed that up precisely by chasing after morality. <laughs> I'm I'm yeah. I'm I'm laughing at reframing <laughs> the Garden of Eden as a pursuit of morality. Uh Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty a great, fun isn't it? That's fun. That's fun. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> um, bringing it back to Merton for for a little bit. Um, yeah. What's a one of the other things that he's known for is for his connection and his dialogue with uh, Eastern traditions, uh, with Buddhism in particular. Um, so, what were the fruits of of that? I know that he had like a he did publish a journal of a lot of his time in Asia. Um, and but but he did gain a lot of understanding from this uh, interfaith dialogue that he established in uh, later on in his life. So what 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 sort of fruit did did he get um, from that practice? Well, unfortunately, a lot of what has come from it was tremendous backlash. Um, I mean, you and I um, are not surprised at all to hear that Christians aren't necessarily. Um, always very comfortable with the idea of interfaith dialogue. Um, pluralism is scary because it means 
um, accepting the validity of something that you disagree with. Right. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I, I don't believe this other thing, but I can accept that it's perhaps valid in its own right. Um, why that would mean that I don't believe what I believe. Um, maybe not, but, (laughs) but admittedly, it takes a certain kind of, um, intellectual and emotional awareness to get to the point where you can encounter things that way. And your average American is not prepared for that, much less, you know, your average Christian. Um, that's, that's not how we're used to thinking about things. Remember, yeah. we're heir to Greek dualism. We like binaries. If X is, is correct, then Y has to be incorrect. Um, yeah, and it's so not suspension of disbelief. It's like suspension of your belief <laughs> or the supremacy of your belief. Yeah. And so, unfortunately, that has... Um, Merton's own bravery in this respect has made it difficult for a lot of people to approach him. However, my own experience with Merton is that um, in the early stages when I was first encountering Merton, um, as with as with many of us, he was one of my first um, significant exposures to the mystical tradition. I was I was fascinated and excited about his encounter with Buddhism and I was also terrified by it because what does this what does this mean in a way I'm stepping outside the bounds of my own religious tradition and it was one of the first times I had done that you know I was I was pretty young um when I was engaging this but um good news for everyone uh Merton was still a Christian when he died um and he died respecting <laughs> died respecting buddhism um turns out you can do both of those things at the same time (laughs) Um, so for anyone who is uneasy at all about approaching that conversation one don't feel like you have to uh, but two if you do approach it um the story ends okay (laughs) i mean aside aside from the fact that he had this tragic you know and surprise death um at least as far as our um, discomfort with interfaith dialogue goes, the story ends on a high note. Um, <laughs> so yeah. anyway, basically the, the fruits of that discussion, I mean, he was only at the beginning of it. He was just entering into this um, really deep uh, exchange uh, with Zen Buddhism. And so who knows where it would have gone. But one thing he was fascinated by was that despite the fact that um, on a propositional level, on the level of religious precepts and doctrine, um, Christians and Buddhists have a lot to disagree about. In fact, the emphases are so different that we, when we're in dialogue, we want to have different conversations. Christians emphasize doctrine in a way that Buddhists don't, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. And so even once we, you know, enter into that conversation, we don't even agree on the talking points, you know, much less get to the point where we can wrestle with our disagreements. Um, nevertheless, um, 
when Merton read Zen Buddhist works, he found tremendous resonance with his own mystical experiences. So the question that comes out of that is, are we all encountering the same spiritual reality, even if we believe different things about it? And can I still be allowed to believe what I believe about that spiritual reality and admit that people who believe differently are still encountering that same spiritual reality? And that's ultimately where he goes with it. Um, and it's sort of as far as it goes. I mean, he has a lot more to say than, I, than, than I've said about it. But like I said, he was only at the beginning of this, of this journey. Yeah, and uh, uh, I, I, I like what you say about just uh, encouraging people to be open to the idea <laughs> of, of this, of interfaith dialogue in general, and Buddhism in particular. Um, I am not very well read in it. I, I did have one professor in grad school that was a Theravada Buddhist, and uh, Theravada Buddhism is, um, is interesting because it does not acknowledge a deity. So. Mm-hmm. Even even from a practical level, you can take many of the things from a lot of Buddhist uh, practice and apply them to a Christian life without any concern for your soul. Really, um, there's a lot there that is um, mm-hmm. that's really valuable. Um, and yeah, and I'm, as I mentioned, I'm I'm not uh, really that far along in my own readings. Uh, by any means in in regards to Buddhism, but it's not, um, it's, it's a, it's a very, it's a very fruitful tradition and very fruitful to, to investigate. Um, Absolutely. You know, there's this, uh, there's this really interesting article, um, written by the Dalai Lama actually, um, where he, uh, he talks about the possibilities of religious syncretism and world religion and he says, basically, in short, um, Buddhism has a respectable and noble tradition, and Christianity has a respectable and noble tradition. And trying to trying to syncretize the two would just do violence to both traditions. You you don't you don't do anything good by syncretizing and mixing traditions. That doesn't mean that there isn't anything valid in both traditions. Right. Right. Um, he just says that syncretism isn't any good. That's not the answer to pluralism. Um, yeah. And, and, and I, I like that. I like that. But I feel like um, Merton takes it a step further. Without trying to blend the traditions, he's saying, can it be that both of them are pointing to the same reality? And can it be okay that they disagree? And can we still admit that there's that we're engaging something true? Um, and this isn't this isn't an unchristian idea in the in the least. We believe in a God who is active in the world, who's bringing the world to some sort of fruition. What, you know, however however we imagine that. In, in more contemporary language, God is missional. God is already active, and so the church is only the church in so much as it's cooperating with what God is already doing in the world, right? So the idea that God's active in doing things, that's great. You know, Christians don't have a hard time accepting that. Now, that means that God is active in Buddhism, you know, God's active in Buddhist communities, 
God is active in Hindu communities and um, God is active through Confucius, tr- Confucian traditions and Taoism and in Shinto and like keep exploring these other traditions. God's working with those people too. And he's working within their belief structures mm-hmm. and that's okay. God, <laughs> get, God, God gets to do what God wants to do. <laughs> yeah. So it's really not a revolutionary idea at all. It's just that we're always afraid the conversation will go too far. Right. But, but that means we just never have the conversation. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's this weird, weird thing where you have to continue to define and refine what you believe. And at the same time that refining sometimes gets to a point where you seem to lose what makes it yours and not theirs. Uh, it's like mm-hmm. this weird balance of, um, what at one point does does individuating uh, have benefits and and yeah. Uh, yeah it's a complicated question but it um that's why people spend their lives exploring it <laughs> um, i mean I can't, I can't speak for everyone but when i explored buddhism it made me a better christian when i explored hinduism it made me a better christian mm-hmm. it's possible that these things can do tremendous good and yeah. maybe we don't need to be so afraid. Right. Yeah. One of the things as far as with uh, when it, when you think about pluralism and you think about uh, all the different, um, the, all the different sorts of nuance and, and gray that comes into, comes into that uh, when you, when you start to dabble in that area or open your mind to the possibility of it, um, it it really like like I mentioned before it you're you're still trying to define your own sense of sense of belief that is that calls back to what we you know what we initially started with 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 John and that he was trying to yeah. make all those other lights die out. Um, Absolutely, there there's a sense in which like our need for different kinds of religious certainty are kind of those worldly lights, right and pluralism interreligious dialogue has a tendency to sort of put those lights out a bit and that can be terrifying at first but but one of the reasons why i i love the mystical tradition so much is because there's a certain kind of trust in discovering that interior light that can only be found when you let go of the certainty right yeah yeah Yeah, that's that's great. But yeah, I we we still have people on our list, and I I think um we're we we uh, we talked about it off air, and it looks like this is going to be a three week instead of a two two part series. Um, but but yeah, bringing that um full full circle with uh, for this particular episode, and bringing it back to John, um, and <laughs> it feels it feels feels appropriate. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Would you like me to read uh, just a portion of, of that poem? Yeah, that'd be great. You have okay. it. You have it ready. Yeah, I've, I've got it all right here. Oh, awesome! On that glad night, in secret, for no one saw me, nor did I look at anything, with no other light or guide than the one that burned in my heart. This guided me more surely than the light of the moon to where he was awaiting me. 
him I know so well. There in a place where no one appeared. <laughs> wow. Well, thank you so much, Stephen, for uh, for uh, agreeing to talk with me again, and uh, and then we'll we'll talk once more and share it with with the audience as well. Um, and as people are are marching out into their own intimate nights, <laughs> um, where can people find you online? Um, you can find me on Twitter um, at skeptical underscore monk. Um, or you could find me on, uh, YouTube. If you, uh, you know, do a quick search for skeptical mystic, probably put that in quotes. Um, or if you go to, uh, facebook.com slash the skeptical mystic, as if it's all one word, you'll find links to those other things. Great. Great. Yeah. And I'll, I'll add that to the show notes as well. Uh, thanks again, Stephen, for talking and, uh, look forward to our next, next uh, talk as well. Absolutely. I'm always excited to talk with you.